From the horrible and vacant hearts of men comes one show to save us all. It's here, it's now, it's craft. I'm your host, Tyler Clementi, the craft spring intern. Joseph Cannon is the award-winning author of seven novels, including Los Alamos, The Good German, and his most recent work, 2015's Leaving Berlin. Cannon is visiting Columbus's Thurber House for an Evenings with Authors reading and Q&A on March 12th. Joseph Cannon, welcome to Craft. Well, delighted to be with you. Leaving Berlin tells the story of Alex Meyer's difficult position between America's CIA and his native Berlin after World War II. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I'd become interested. He's one of the German writers who had gone to America in exile to escape Hitler. And there was a period right after the war when the Soviet occupiers, the Soviet military administration in East Berlin and what later became East Germany, made a concerted effort to woo some of these exiles back. It was perceived as a kind of great PR gesture to get practices of German culture to align themselves with the East. And he's one of these people. What they don't understand is that he's also a spy and working for the Americans. You focus on Berlin, on setting the scene, and this is something I've seen in some of your other titles, that you're interested particularly in geography. Yeah, I find that all of my books, one way or another, begin with place. Uh, it, it was true from the very first one. I, I wrote Los Alamos because I went there as a tourist, and I became absolutely fascinated by it. And, you know, in the way of thing, one thing led to another. In this particular one, um, in an odd way, it's a follow-up to The Good German, which I wrote more than 10 years ago. But that was about the American occupation in 45, and necessarily it was set in West Berlin. I became more and more interested in what was happening in the rest of the city. And because I like Berlin and I visited frequently, I decided to follow up and, and really discover much more about how it came to be. You know, we I think most Americans, our timeline here is, we just assume that East Germany was uh, a Soviet client state like Poland or Czechoslovakia, but it was a political anomaly. It hadn't existed before, and it was made up, so to speak, as it went along. I found this all really interesting. Um, I found the position of the Soviet occupiers vis-a-vis us interesting, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the more you look into it, the more complicated it gets, and the more dramatic, so hence the book. So you've written about Germany, about Berlin before with the good German. Uh, So leaving Berlin is a sort of return to Berlin. What's it been like writing and returning to that scene? It is, well, you know, one of the peculiar things is that all of these people are real to me. And my wife had never been to Berlin, and we were there recently. And as we were walking along, I said, oh, this is the flat, you know, where Irene would have lived, and this is the place where so-and-so worked, and she just looked at me as if this were a surreal moment and said, you know a lot of people here, it's just that you've made them up. <laughs> and I said, well, sort of. You know, it's, but they become real to you, and, and I think that it's important, or at least it's important for me as a writer, to really place people. I, I want to know where they live. Do they, can they walk to work? Do they have to take a tram? Uh, what, what do they see in their daily lives? Now, sometimes none of this appears in the book, but I think that the writer needs to know it. it. It needs to be real to you, or it'll never be real to the reader. So you talk about placing people, uh, and I'm wondering how it is you decide on a particular location, you know, Berlin, Istanbul, larger settings like that, and then on the smaller scale, day-to-day, how do you think about people and physical spaces? It's, 
You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, some places speak to you in, uh, in this way and, and others. I mean, I live in New York. I have no intention of writing about it. Um, in a sense, I know about it. What intrigues me are places. Uh, Istanbul is a selfish example. Again, I went there just on a visit. As a tourist, I'd always been interested. And I just fell in love with it, which I think practically every visitor does, and wanted to know more and more and more. And I found that most of the guidebooks ended with Ataturk. And I thought, well, but what happened afterwards? What happened in this period that I tend to write about, which is the aftermath of World War II? And what I discovered, of course, is that all during the war it had been a great listening post. It was a nest of spies. It was one of the great places. And I had read in some book, there was an account of an evening at the Glamorous Park Hotel where practically everybody at every table was working for one intelligence agency or another. And I thought, my God, it's the real-life Casablanca. You know, this is an irresistible setting for anyone who writes the sort of books that I do. And so on we go. Berlin, I think, is a more serious case in the sense that I really think that Germany is at the heart of um, the the history of our time, and certainly in the West. And if we are, we're part of that. I think that not to understand what went on there is, is really not to fully understand our own history. So your books are certainly concerned with settings, in this case Berlin, but they're more than travelogues. They're action novels, they're about espionage, they're about characters and their experiences. What is it that makes a good protagonist for you? Um, you know, I, one is that I like, I like, because I think it's true of all of life, people who find themselves in a situation of moral compromise. You know, I want the books to be entertaining. I want a reader to follow the plot. And so, yes, there's intrigue and there's action. But really the concerns behind them, um, which which I would hope would get across to some readers, are uh, it's a sort of moral intrigue. What's the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. And what do you do in a situation where there's no right thing to do? Just, you know, what's the less good? What's the le- I mean, the less harmful, the less bad? I think that we confront situations like that all the time, but possibly not in such a dramatic way. And what fiction allows you to do is, is really put a floodlight on it, I mean, really dramatize it. So that's part of the appeal for me. In Leaving Berlin, you're writing about the protagonist, Alex Meyer, and he, like you, is a writer. What was that like, writing about another writer? Well, it's the first time I've ever done it, because usually I think it's it's kind of a cop-out. I mean, I, I like to give my people real professions. But in this particular case, uh, it was part of the theme and the plot. It was this notion of why was it important for the Soviets to lure cultural figures back? Uh, the most famous of which, of course, is Bertolt Brecht, who actually appears in the book. And I had written a book previously, a few years ago, called Stardust, which is set in wartime Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And part of the cast of characters there, and certainly one of the things that drew me to it as a subject and interested me, were all of the European emigres who ended up there. I think it's very little known in this country that, you know, all during the war in the Hollywood Hills were some of the great repositories of middle European culture. And, you know, the Stravinsky and Schoenberg and uh, Thomas Mann and uh, Anna Mahler, there were just endless numbers of people who had transferred over and settled in Southern California, which I thought, what an extraordinary cultural clash this must have been, you know, at that time. And later what happened to them is, is that 
some of them went back. And I thought, why? Why? What would have tempted them to go back? Now, partly it was be- the wanting to work in one's own language again. In some cases, it was because they became spooked by the rise of McCarthyism in this country, which reminded them only too unfavorably of things they had seen before. And they were more nervous and apprehensive. But it was also that they they were going home. What they were going home to, however, was an utterly devastated um, society. It was not only physically ruined, but in a way culturally and morally ruined. Right, right. It was really rock bottom. There was, you know, there was nowhere further down to go. And it's at this point that people who might have been left-leaning or socially idealistic, and one of the reasons they escaped Hitler to begin with, find that they're more naturally drawn to the East than the West. They don't yet know or quite understand that what they're going to is, is going to become a prison and some and a whole society that's going to be imprisoned. I thought this was a sort of cusp moment that was really interesting about people who are ostensibly doing things for the right reasons and nevertheless create this appalling legacy and have to live with it. There's a good deal of moral ambiguity in this story. Yeah, very much so. Well, I think in life itself, but there's particularly so at this time and place. You know, this is this is a society on its knees, and consequently, lying is second nature. You know, survival is everything. I want to probe one more time on Alex Meyer because he is a writer, and it's always interesting to see how writers write about characters that share their profession. Is there anything you have in common with him? Well, I... Um, I would I would hope to have in common all of his good instincts, but none of his bad. But I th- I mean I think his reaction to things as he begins to see how the sides are balancing out. I mean this is a man who has been in a sense trapped into agreeing to do intelligence work, and he's in effect buying his way back to America. But what he discovers is that it immediately puts him in a morally compromised position. What what the Americans really want him to do is to report on not only people that he had once known, but a woman he had once been in love with mm-hmm. and is still in love with. Now what does he do? Do you actually betray a person you're in love with? I, I find this all, you know, these kinds of moral questions are fascinating to me. And I think that his reaction to them which tries to be clear-sighted, but also finally reaches this point of where do you draw your own line? I mean, where do you create your own personal morality in all of this? How far will you go? And I'd like to think that we would all not go maybe as far as Alex does, but also that he sees where he needs to stop. And I think those moral questions are very interesting, and your readers must also. You've won countless awards for your work, but you haven't always been a full-time novelist. I know for a long time you worked as a publishing executive. Right. No, I was I was on the other side of the desk. My first job was as an editor, and then later um, sort of rose up through the ranks. And I enjoyed it. I, I liked publishing. I was not one of those people who secretly had manuscripts in bottom drawers <laughs> and you know thought I'd need to get out of this day job. It was just a very serendipitous thing to happen. Um, it happened late in life. I didn't start writing until I was 50. I don't necessarily recommend that to everybody, but I think there's just a right time for each person, and it was the right time for me. And I, in fact, my first impulse when I was in 
Los Alamos and thinking, and I had the idea for the book. I thought, gee, what would have happened out here in what was then the most secret place on earth that didn't technically exist? And I thought, what would have happened if there'd been a crime? How would they go about solving that? And I thought, what a good idea. And because I was still in publishing, I thought, who can I give it to? Right. Who's looking for an idea? Who's between books? And no one was, and that's not necessarily a wise thing to do anyway. People should have their own ideas. Right. And I became so, so not obsessed, but interested with it, that I made it my own secret project. I never told anyone I was doing it because I thought, you know, I didn't know if I could, and what could be more embarrassing than a publisher who can't write? Yeah, yeah. And people would sort of look at you at parties. So I just didn't say anything to anybody and, and finished it myself. But it's one of the Cinderella stories because it all worked out well. And I discovered that I loved doing it. I, I had no idea that I would enjoy the process so much. So you opened up that bottom drawer and got a manuscript going in there. And luckily, luckily it worked. I'm wondering how your experience as an executive being on the other side of the desk has informed your writing. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, people have asked it. Um, from an editorial point of view, not at all. I mean, I think that everybody sits down and faces a blank piece of paper. So, you know, there isn't a transferable skill set, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But when you're involved in the actual publication of the book, um, it's slightly different because you know how it works. And you also know how much can go wrong and how much is not necessarily uh, the fault of anybody in the company, it's timing, luck, you know, all of those things that, that factor into a publication. So I hope, uh, I mean, maybe my publisher would roll his eyes and laugh and disagree, but I hope I'm a more understanding author than some of the ones they deal with. Um, you know, the, there's, a, there's a real disconnect. Most publishers are publishing, let's say, 150 books. Most authors are publishing one. So there's, there's a real difference in focus and, and attention that each of them has. Is it a matter of compromise on certain things? Um, you know, I've been lucky because I, I think everybody I've worked with is doing a good job. But there, there are moments when you step back and it's important to let the publisher publish and not be interfering. I... You want to you want to have them take ownership of what they're doing. Now, is that frustrating? Uh, sometimes, sure. <laughs> but I think it's it's in everybody's interest to let people be themselves. I want to revisit settings, which, as you've said, are very central to your work. What is it that keeps you coming back to the post World War II time period? It's you know, at first, I think it was simply a matter of happenstance because I had done Los Alamos. I was immersed in that period and. You know, one thing leads to another, and, and the more you delve into it, the more fascinating it becomes. But I do, I guess there is another. I've, I've been asked this, um, and I then ask myself, why do you write about this period? And it seems to me that it's the, the real hinge of the century, the last century, which is still ours, so to speak. And it's the crux. I'd, I think everything changes at this point. Uh, you know, we're all so self-involved that we like to think that anything that happens to us is a seminal moment right. historically. And in a way, that's true because it has happened to us. But there are some periods that are clearly more important than others. And I think the moment the atomic bomb goes off at Alamogordo, the world shifts on its axis. You know, once you have the ability to have self-annihilation, that's, that's not just a game changer, that's a world changer. And I think that the revelation of the Holocaust, at least in the West, operated in a similar way morally. It's how could we ever 
look at things in the same way again. So there were these immense changes that happened. And decisions are having to be taken by people as ordinary as you and me, but the ramifications are going to last for half a century or more. So I thought, you know, what's really going on in this period, this is the beginning of our time. This is the beginning of the world that we inherited. I used at one point, um, when I was well, when I was writing Stardust, the book about Hollywood, I used a, a movie metaphor for this about the war and what had happened and how it changed everybody. I think the war begins with Casablanca. It's romantic, it's black and white, and it's very clear-cut, you know, just when to stand up and sing the Marseillaise, etc. But the war ends with the third man, where everything is just murky and gray, and maybe everyone is morally compromised. I think that's the universe we inherited, so this is the period to look at. I think it's, it's to me, just an endlessly dramatic time. It's the moment of inheritance. Yeah. I mean, having said that, I, I don't want to pigeonhole myself into forever, so maybe I should write about the Crusades or something, but I think that would take a lot of research work that I don't particularly want to do. I enjoy, I enjoy the research for these. I, I, in some ways, going into each of these books, it's sort of like signing up for a graduate course. You know something about it, but you want to know more. So part of the, the joy, I guess, or certainly the pleasure for me, um, is a student's pleasure, is, is learning more about the period. You've been writing for quite a while now. Have you ever started up a project that takes you out of that setting? No, not yet. And I suppose that maybe is worrisome because I don't want to be stuck in it. But, uh, I mean, there's a, a fair amount of range. Not everything is 1945. Right. Leaving Berlin, for instance, is January 49 under the airlift. So we have, you know, it's four years later. Although, interestingly enough, very little has changed in those four years. You know, people are still on tight rations or starving. There's still a vibrant black market. It's, you know, it's still Stunde Null, as, as they called it then, zero hour. It's only later that the economic miracle comes. So, not yet, but maybe. Not yet, but maybe. I mean, the book that I'm thinking about or researching at the moment um, pushes it a few years later. So, who knows, by the time I get to book 10, maybe I'll be caught up and be contemporary. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> all right, so step by step, we'll work our way into the 50s and all the way to 2015. You know, there's there's a value in, I, I, I know that some people call these historical novels. I mean, I just think of them as the recent past. But I, I think that working in the past has a lot of advantages. I mean, it's, I guess, you know, the great metaphor is if you're in the middle of a battle, you really don't know what's going on it's only later that you can look back on it and try and piece together what actually happened. I think that our daily life right now is, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of being in the middle of a battle. We're, we're so busy just fending off what's happening and coming at us right and left that we're not getting a sense of the over picture. That you need a little historical depth for. Retrospect is important to fiction. Yep. Well, Joseph Cannon, thanks for being on Craft. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Have a good one. We look forward to seeing you in Columbus. I can't wait to be there. That'd be fun. Again, Joseph Cannon's novel is Leaving Berlin, and he visits Thurber House on Thursday, March 12th. For more information from our guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Tyler Clemente. Until next time, be creative.